Good morning. Hi, Brittany. I wanted to, I don't do this often, but I wanted to bring up some Bibles. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, either just to follow along with us this morning or uh, to take because you don't have one, we have them. Anytime you come, we'd love to give you a Bible. So anyone, no, no shame. Hands up. Anybody? Good? Okay. Even if you look at it, you think that looks better than the one I have. <laughs> we can do a swap or something. Okay. All right. Um, as we begin, just a little illustration as we start. Uh, question, can you think of a time where uh, you, you went somewhere and it, it exceeded your expectations? I'm thinking along the lines of travel, maybe place, a place that you went and traveled or a site that you went and saw and you'd heard about it and you, you knew something about it, but somehow when you got there and actually saw it, it it exceeded your expectations. It was way bigger, way more beautiful, way more breathtaking than, than you would even imagine. Any place come to mind? Yeah. Larry. One of my homes, uh, Royal Family Kids Camp, Yeah. send the kids to this Christian-based camp. And yeah. We have heard about it and stuff, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking it's just another regular camp and, oh, lovely, they're just getting rid of us. But the camp, it, it, it was a Christian-based camp, and it was one of the first times growing up I felt loved and accepted. And, nice. And it, it just out in the woods, in the mountains, so God's creation, yeah. God's people loving on the kids and stuff. It was just overwhelming. Beautiful. Beautiful. What else came to your mind? Yeah, Jess. Uh, when we went to China and saw the Great Wall of China. Oh, yeah. It's just you grow up seeing it in textbooks your entire life, but you really, until you're there and you can't see where it ends, Yeah. You're standing on this thing that was built forever, it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I've been there. I felt, I felt the same way. Walking on. Anyone else? I say, hey, yeah, John. Uh, I think, well, I did a lot in the summer, but I think the Coliseum I know, I had to see all your pictures and envy you from a distance. She did go see a lot of things. But the Coliseum was surreal. What about it, what was one thing about it that actually seeing it, it was more impressive or than you imagined? Just to, to think that they would have, um, like, the battles there and everybody would come and surround and just being able to kind of be where the people would yeah. Yeah. It's like gladiator, right? It is. It literally. It is like it is like like gladiator. <laughs> literally, right? Um, that was the Coliseum, right? We're gladiator. Okay. okay. Um, I was thinking about this question this week. Uh, the Taj Mahal was one of those things for me. Back in 2005, my wife Betsy and I went to India for five weeks with some folks from Grace uh, uh, and did ministry in churches throughout uh, Delhi and, and where the Balarams are, in fact. And we took a couple of days out to drive up to Agra and take a tour and, and see the, the Taj Mahal. Again, it's one of those textbooks, like I've seen it in the, my Western Civ te textbook, or, and I've seen postcards of it, and Western Civ, Eastern Civ, <laughs> technically, well... Anyway, history book, I should say. And uh, yeah, it's just one of those iconic things. You know, we all know what the Taj Mahal looks like, but it really was this like movie. It was so gorgeous. That when you get there, if you've never been there before, you kind of pay and you get your ticket and crowds come in and they usher you through this little portico, you know, uh, enclosed area through this archway and you first get this glimpse and there's something about it being framed in that wind, that wind, this door as you come around. And I'm like, that's the Taj Mahal. 
right there. Like that's it right there. And it was bigger than I imagined and more ornate than I imagined. You walk out, there's this you know, reflecting pool. I mean, a million people have taken that photo, but I had to take mine. And, uh, and you actually, when you get up on it, you have to take your shoes off because they don't want you wrecking the marble. You have to put these little like, you know, those like slipper things around your, your feet. Anyway, so, so we get there on the most beautiful day, not a cloud in the sky. It's not hot. It's just gorgeous. It's about an hour before sun is going down. There's the Tonuses that we were with. And we just spent about two hours walking. I mean, the, the detail of all the architecture and the ornate little flowery stuff all over it and the size, and it changed color. You know, we get there, you know, while the sun's still bright and it's white like chalk. And as the sun, go to that last picture, back one. Uh, all of a sudden, I mean, as the sun is going down, it's like turning yellow and orange and pink. And it just was breathtaking. And we sat on, on the steps right there just not talking for a while, just taking this in, like we're sitting on the Taj Mahal. It's just, I just didn't imagine it was gonna look like this. Um, maybe a runner up in my mind was, was going to Alaska and going to, to Denali, you know, the highest peak in North America, uh, Mount McKinley. Again, seen pictures of it, seen documentaries of people who've climbed it or died trying to climb it. I mean, it's this massive cathedral shape, just, you know. And, uh, and I've been to Glacier before and the Yellowstone and Grand Tetons, but, just wasn't prepared. We were miles and miles away on our tour bus. And as we were driving, the bus driver said, oh, you can actually see the Nolly from here, even though we were coming around the back way. And he points it out. I'm like, wow, it's really big. And then he told us how far we still were from it. I mean, we were like you know, miles and miles and miles away. And it still just dominated the landscape. And, and we get there the next day, and Eric and Donna, again, we travel a lot with them. Um, we, we took the charter bus, right, or the, the tour bus, right in the middle of the park and got dropped off, and we're hiking. It's like Sound of Music down this you know, grassy, wildflower hill. On a perfect day, they, they, the bus driver told me, he said, you know, 10, 20% of the days of the year, can you see the peak totally unobstructed by clouds? Most of the time, some of it's covered, and it was just like not a cloud in the sky, and we're just... I just couldn't take it in. We actually burst into singing at the same time, unplanned, How Great Thou Art. Uh, or, you know, the verse, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur. We, but more than one of us started singing this at the same time, just, just breathtaking. I was thinking about that this week with Luke 2, because this scene here, it's the arrival of the Christ, the arrival of the Messiah. This is the highest peak of all of God's story, right? This is from, from Genesis 3 on. This is the promised one who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And, and, and like we sang in Joy to the World, he's going to reverse this curse and, and, and fix what uh, this world, because of sin and the fall, uh, is wrong with it. Everything is going to come right here in Jesus. This is the point. I mean, I think about, you know, uh, the Borgantines named their son Simeon, having in mind Simeon in Luke, who is going to dedicate this baby Jesus, and he's going to say, I can die now. I've seen the Lord's Christ. I mean, for generations they'd expected, what is it going to look like? And on the surface, it doesn't look very impressive, right? Young couple, traveling, not a great place to stay, maybe in a stable, maybe in a back room where animals stay, baby lying in, a, in, a, in, in hay in a manger. And on the surface, this could look sort of anticlimactic. And, and, and yet, because we, we see the angels in this scene and what they're doing and how they're responding and how the shepherds end up responding actually helps us recognize the, the glory that actually, when he comes, it does exceed expectation. It is beyond what people expected. 
And it's glorious. I was thinking as we read Philippians 2, um, Jesse took us, you know, it describes, you know, Jesus, he, he humbled himself and he took the form of a man and he was born as one of us, but it was even lower than that, but he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And then there's that point where the glory kicks in, right? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee bows in heaven and on earth and on the earth. But the, the fact is the glory doesn't just kick in with therefore God has highly exalted him. All of this first stuff of stepping down, becoming a man, humbling self to the point of death, God's glory is all over this first part too. And that's the point this morning I want us to see uh, in Luke 2. So turn there, Luke 2, 8 through 21. And let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. God, I pray that your spirit would help us as we re re recount these events here, this night that Jesus was born, um, and that the, the angels' message and their announcement and their worship and the response of the shepherds and, and even Mary and Joseph in this scene would, would help us recognize the glory in this part of the story, that your glory, really, your beauty shines in uh, the low parts here, the humble parts, the weak parts. Help us see this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke 2, 18 through 21, this is this announcement of the angels to shepherds and, and then they go and see for themselves and, and, and concludes in verse 21 with, with Jesus being uh, officially named and circumcised eight days later. And the section breaks up into two chunks. The first is the announcement, right? The angels come and announce what has just happened to shepherds. That's the first part of the, the morning here. And then the second, we're gonna look at the responses. The shepherds, how they react, how Mary and Joseph react, and even all those who begin hearing the story that the shepherds tell, how they react. So let's start with point number one here, the announcement. Comes in two stages. First, we get one angel. So there's these shepherds out in the field by night. And first, an angel of the Lord appears to these shepherds um, out in the field at night with a message. And then after that, this army of angels, this host of a multitude of angels, heavenly host, burst out singing or shouting. It doesn't really say, it just says what they're saying. Um, so there's an announcement and then there's worship. So look at the announcement, verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. Luke wants us to understand uh, who God chose to announce this to, who, who God chose to first tell that Jesus is born. And it's shepherds, right? Shepherds were out in the field and the Lord appeared to them. So what's the significance here? Why? Luke doesn't come right out and say it. God doesn't come right out and say it. But, but God chooses to reveal this news to angels or to, to shepherds by angels. Shepherds often get kind of a bad reputation. Have you heard, you know, sort of stories of shepherds are supposed to be low lives. They're kind of like tax collectors and not trusted and sort of despicable. They're, they're kind of like dirty people. And the point is that God actually announces it to sort of the low lives, right? And that's the big point. Um, but Luke doesn't really say anything negative about these shepherds, right? Is the, is the, is the picture you get in this, this section like, you know, these are a bunch of tax collectors like Matthew hung out with and the, the Pharisees are, are, are wagging their finger at? No, they're just these, these 
shepherds out in the field with their flock at night. In fact, if you think about it, in the Bible, generally speaking, shepherds and imagery of shepherds has a really positive connotation, doesn't it? I mean, think, the, the three most important people in the history of Egypt, or in Israel were shepherds, right? Abraham raised flocks, and Moses was a shepherd, and David at one point was a shepherd. In fact, David thought the image of a shepherd was good enough for it to be ascribed to God, right? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Shepherd was an image of, of a, a caretaker, a tender, um, watchful, protective, providing um, overseer of humble, dumb sheep, as Ralph Wagonette pointed out to me at the end of the service. And shepherds are pretty good, right? Jesus tells a, a parable one point with a shepherd in it. And the qualities of the shepherd are that he's not even willing to count one sheep as an acceptable loss, right? And so he leaves his 99 and he goes out even after this one uh, to, to save, right? And Jesus calls himself, he says, I am the good shepherd. So I don't think the point is that God reveals this news to sort of low lives. I think the point is he reveals it to everyday people, just humble people. I mean, the picture of Luke 2, 8 through 21 is just a very humble, um, non-spectacular sort of scene. This couple in a cold, quiet, you know, dark place, you know, just quietly, this thing is happening. And then God just goes and pulls in the only people awake at night, probably nomads, right? They're out in the fields at night with their sheep. They probably live with them. I, I couldn't help picturing Joy and Jeremy Herman, missionaries we support, and Chad, who they're there to reach a nomadic tribe uh, in Chad. And they herd camels and they just travel where the camels go. So they're probably often out at night with their camels under the stars, you know, making sure everything's okay. And, and God chooses to make this announcement to just everyday shepherds on the night shift while everyone else is asleep in town. He says, in fact, I bring you good news of great joy. I think that's good news for us, right? Not just special, elite, you know, upper class, upper crust, top 1%, but you, you shepherds, Fear not, good news of great joy for all the people. This news is for you, you, shepherds. And he says, verse 11, this is the announcement. Good news of great joy for all the people. And here it is, this is what it is. Verse 11, unto you is born this day in the city of David, three things, just one, but a savior, who is Christ, the Lord. So a baby's been born unto you. This baby is for you, shepherds even. And he's a savior, he's Christ, and he's the Lord. First of all, this baby is a savior. Keyword here, deliverer, if you're taking notes. Think deliverer or rescuer. So this unto you is born today a rescuer, a deliverer. That's what Savior means. All through the Old Testament is just story after story of saviors, right? With small s, right? So Israel is slaves in Egypt, Abraham's descendants, and God raises up Moses to be a savior, right? To, to go and, and lead his people out of Israel, or Egypt, out of the, hand, the oppression of slavery and out into freedom, right? 
And later on, the whole book of Judges is just this cycle again and again of God sending saviors, right? God allows his people to be judged because they turn away after idols and they don't treat him as holy, like the arrangement that he's made with them. And then he'll send a savior, men and women at different points to come back in and raise them, defeat their enemies and make them safe again, right? Make them a people again. But over all these saviors in the Old Testament is the Lord, right? Yahweh, he is the God who saves. He's the one who sends these saviors again and again to rescue his people from Egypt, from Philistines, from uh, you know, Babylon, and etc. God sends saviors to, to deliver his people out from under the hand of, of oppressors. And we've already been told in our Advent series in Luke 1 to Mary and, and Luke and Matthew 1 to, to Joseph that this savior who's gonna be born is gonna save his people from what oppressor? What is it? Yeah, that's what he said to Joseph. Name this baby Jesus, it means God saves, because he will save his people from their sin. Okay, so unto you is born a savior, and this savior has come to deliver you from an oppressor, and the oppressor is sin. What makes Satan a powerful enemy is sin that I am a sinner, that you are a sinner, that my heart is inclined towards sin. Sin has a grip on my heart and your heart. And because of that, that my heart's inclined to re rebel against God and, and be my own God, then my life is such that I deserve God's guilt. There's guilt for my sin. So there's a grip sin has on me and there's guilt of sin. And so Satan uses those things as weapons, right? He accuses us of, because of our sin, rightly. The Bible says, he comes to us apart from a savior and says, how can a holy God have anything to do with you? And he's right. He's the accuser of the brethren, the Bible says. And he's the tempter and he's good at it because sin has a grip on our hearts, right? Sin exerts a, a, an oppression over us, a power over us that we need to be saved from. And the angels say to the shepherds, well, good news, is born to you today a savior, someone who's gonna save God's people from their sins, not just from Rome or the Philistines or the Greeks or the Romans, but from sin. A, a Christmas hymn that we don't sing as often as Joy to the World, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, uh, Oh Come All You Faithful, is uh, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. If you, know, you don't know this hymn, I wanna read through some of the words for it. What makes it a really unique Christmas hymn um, is that unlike most of the ones we sang this morning that are just sort of describing what everyone saw, right? Angels appeared, shepherds heard it, they went, the baby was in the manger, Mary and Joseph and the sheep and all that. Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence is a hymn about the incarnation. It's about the arrival of Jesus, but it's described from the perspective of heaven, sort of behind the scenes, seeing what is God really up to here? I mean, it's, it's not just a manger, it's not just a baby. Look at some of the words from this hymn. Put that first verse up, April. It begins like this. Let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. So everyone on earth, shh, silence. And with fear and trembling, put yourself in a posture of humble, reverent fear before God, right? So the hymn is starting saying, get in the right posture here, right? Fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly minded. Don't be distracted here by silly little things. Because with blessing in his hand, Christ, our God to earth 
descendeth our full homage to demand, our full honor, reverence, respect, worship to demand. That's what's happening in Luke 2. Verse 3 of the hymn says this. It's picturing again what's going on here. And so it describes a little bit of what we see here with the angels. It says, rank on rank, the host of heaven spreads its vanguard on the way. What's a vanguard? Besides university in Costa Mesa. <laughs> it's named after a real vanguard. What's a vanguard, anyone? You don't want to be the smarty pants. So you can be, who, what's a vanguard? Someone who protects someone. Okay, clo close. Thanks for getting us started. Yes, it, there's protection going on. The soldiers in the front line, right? The vanguard is the front cutting edge of the army. Literally, it's the edge that, like, picture Braveheart or maybe the film version of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. They have the scene where a huge battlefield out in front, and there's all the enemy out there, and they just are like this sand of the sea. It's just like, you know. And then up on the ridge line, it's always on a ridge line for whatever reason. They're all up on the hill, and going in both directions, there's just thousands of soldiers, and then they go back in ranks, right? And that's the vanguard, that front edge that's gonna be the first line of attack heading out into that field when King Peter yells, for Narnia, right? And they charge down and the king is leading, right? Hopefully, if it's a good king, there's, I think in Braveheart, isn't, aren't the bad guys, the, uh, the, the British, the kings are like way back in the safe field and, and, and they send all the other guys out, but that's not the way it is here, right? Rank on rank, the host of heaven, all this angel army that, that appears in just a few verses, they're there because of this. It says, the light of lights descendeth from the realms of endless day, that the powers of hell may vanish as the darkness clears away. It's picturing this birth of Jesus right here as the vanguard of heaven is all lined up and the, the, the general, the king, who's gonna lead the charge against Hell and our enemy is Jesus. The infant Jesus is leading the vanguard. Have you ever envisioned the Christmas story? You look at your nativity and say, think vanguard. <laughs> I don't know who wrote this hymn, but they did for good reason. Jesus is leading this vanguard uh, that the darkness is gonna clear away. The powers of hell are gonna vanish because of this baby. He's gonna get rid of the, the, the weapon. He's gonna take the weapon out of our enemy's hand, right? He's gonna do something about sin so that Satan can't accuse me of being guilty of it anymore because it's been paid for. And this baby's gonna do something about sin so that it doesn't have a grip on my heart anymore, but there's a new game in town. The Holy Spirit's gonna dwell in us and actually give us victory over sin and renew us after the image of our creator. Jesus is leading the charge to do this. And right here at the very beginning, as he's born as a baby in a manger, he's leading this vanguard. So unto you shepherds and you, Grace Fullerton, is born this day a savior, a deliverer, a rescuer. And secondly, he's the Christ. Keyword, promised or anointed one. So he's not just another savior like Moses and Jephthah and Gideon and these various judges and kings and, and David and stuff. He is the deliverer. He's the one that all along God said, eventually I'm gonna send. So he's the priest that's greater than Moses because he's actually gonna bring us back to God for good. And he's the king that's greater than David because his rule is going to be forever and ever. And God is going to subject every last enemy to Jesus as king and he will reign forever. 
And he's the prophet that's greater than Elijah because he's actually gonna reveal and show us God, not just speak on behalf of God, but John 1 says, manifest God for us. We've seen him. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. So he's not just a savior, he's the Christ. He's the savior. And he's not just greater than Moses and David and Elijah by degree. He's like a hundred times better than these guys. No, he's different in kind because he's the Lord. Under you is born a savior who's Christ, the Lord. Like as in Lord of the universe, right? Not as in Lord Vader, right? Or, no, that was a dumb joke. Um, that's what I get for letting my brain just go. Uh, but later in the Gospels, like when Jesus is teaching, there's times where, where people come up and just call him Lord, and they don't mean that they think he's God. There's a lot of times where they just, out of respect, they say Lord, and they're, they're humbling themselves. But he, right here at the beginning, in Luke 1 and 2, every time that the, that the Lord is being named, it has in mind Almighty God, Yahweh, maker of heaven and earth, the one who is the God of Abraham, who made promises that he's gonna fulfill one day through his Christ. And so here, when the angels say he's a savior and he's Christ, the Lord, I don't think that they just are, are um, sort of you know, giving him a title of respect. They mean this savior is Christ. And big surprise, it's the Lord himself. God is gonna be the savior. This isn't just a human savior. This human savior is the Lord. That him, again, let all mortal flesh, picks up on this. Verse two says, king of kings. Is that the right place? That one, king of kings and yet born of Mary. As of old on earth he stood, Lord of lords and human vesture in the body and the blood. This is the Lord taking on human flesh and becoming a man. And then verse four says this. I love the last verse. At his feet, Jesus, the baby Jesus feet in this hymn, right? At his feet, the six-winged seraph, cherubim with sleepless eye, veil their faces to the presence and with ceaseless voice they cry, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Lord most high. Where, where in the Bible does that come from? Revelation, and earlier than that, Isaiah 6, Isaiah is given this vision of the holy God in, in, in heaven, surrounded by angels who are veiling themselves before God, his holiness. They can't even look directly at God. In this vision, the angels are crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And in his vision, it says the, the threshold of the temple in this vision were shaking at this worship of the holy God. And this hymn is trying to connect the dots for us and says, um, these angels are saying that this baby is a savior who's Christ the Lord. And the angels bursting out in, in just a couple of verses, all saying glory to God in the highest, that's because this baby is the Lord. So you add all these titles up and the good news of great joy for all the people is that the long-awaited deliverer with a capital D is here and he is gonna save us not just from one bad government, he's gonna save us from what makes any government a bad government, he's gonna save us from sin. And he's shown up to do it himself. He's gonna do it as the Lord, as God. Our savior is God himself. And that's why verse 12 ought to then go, wait, what? Verse 12 says, here's how you'll find him. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby 
wrapped in swaddling cloths, and lying in a manger. I think the bit of all that, that's the unexpected bit, is the manger part. Because they've just said, listen, a baby's just been born, and, and it's a savior, and it's Christ the Lord. So they're expecting a baby, right? That's what they're going to go look for is a baby. And unless they're really bad parents, it's going to be wrapped in cloth, right? The part that is like, what is lying in a manger? The crib's going to be where animals eat. It's a food trough. It's, this is a humble, undignified way for Lord of Lords and human vesture to be born. And I think the significance is this is the first glimpse of, that we get in Jesus' life of how he's going to win the battle. How, how is he going to make the powers of uh, hell vanish and clear away the darkness? What, what is the battle plan of the Savior to rescue us from sin? His battle plan is going to be in weakness. Not with army and swords and horses and banners flying and, and power and might. He's going to save us in weakness and bearing shame and enduring um, suffering and, and being mocked. He's going to win in weakness. That's his plan. And his birth even lets us know right up front, this Savior is going to save by condescending. That's a good word, Right? I know we use it to, don't, condes, don't be condescending, patronizing. Don't talk to me like I'm a baby. But when it's God descending down so that he can help us and be with us, that's really good. Jesus is condescending. He's humiliating himself. He's stepping down and he's going to be weak um, to, to triumph. Another Christmas hymn, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, written by Robert South. Southwell, I think that's how he pronounced his name, lived in the 1800s. He wrote a poem um, about the incarnation called New Heaven, New War. And it really sort of takes this little idea that, that the glory of God and the power of God is going to happen in weakness. Listen how he spins this out in this, this, this uh, poem about the birth of Jesus. He says, this little babe, so few days old, has come to rifle Satan's fold. That means ransack. That means he's come to loot Satan's fold, right? He's going to rustle the sheep. <laughs> All hell doth at his presence quake, and though he himself for cold doth shake. For in this weak, unarmed wise, that just means in this weak, unarmed manner, the gates of hell he will surprise. With tears he fights and wins the field. His naked breast stands for a shield. His battering shot are babish cries, his arrows looks of weeping eyes, his martial ensigns, the banners that you know fly over the army, um, his martial ensigns cold and need, and feeble flesh his warrior's steed. His camp is pitched in a stall, his bulwark but a broken wall, the crib his trench, haystocks his stakes, of shepherds he his muster makes. And thus, as sure his foe to wound, in other words, and so confident that he's going to win, the angels trumps alarm sound. They sound the alarm. The, the, the angels announce the victory already as if sure to win as they behold this baby in weakness and in helplessness. Jesus is going to win through weakness. 
And it doesn't just start in weakness and then get strong through life. Jesus' life is not rags to riches. It's rags to rags to rags to riches, right? Then, therefore, God highly exalted him. But this is the trajectory of Jesus' whole life is marked by weakness, right? And lest we look at all the weakness and go, oh, how pitiful. I hope something glorious happens at some point. So that we see the weaknesses, that is the glory of God being displayed. Look at the angel's response. The angel makes this announcement and then it says, verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. Suddenly the, the heavens open up. I, I've been re reading different uh, kids' Bibles last week with our kids' kind of Advent preparation. You know, and some of them, it's just cool to see they're different, trying to, they're trying to depict what's going on here. And sometimes it's all the heavens are full. Jesus' storybook Bible, it's kind of cool. It's all the hills around them. It's like under, behind every ridge and, and, and little nook and cranny, there's all these glowing angels just like surrounding them on the ground everywhere. But whatever it looked like, the angels burst out, multitudes shouting or singing, glory to God in the highest. In other words, angels are looking at baby in a manger and their reaction is glory. They're saying, this is glorious. In fact, they send the shepherds, go see. You think all this is glorious? Go look in the manger. That's what they say. When you think about it, this huge spectacle, if you said, well, what's the most spectacular event in this? You might say, well, all these angels shouting, I mean, in the middle of the night, waking these shepherds up or, you know, scaring them half to death and bursting out with praise, that's the spectacle. But all, this, all their spectacle is just to say, go look in the manger, right? That's what's making all of this spectacle, right? Is the glory in the manger. God's glory shines brightly in his condescension. We see his glory in the weakness, in the cost, in the sacrifice, what Jesus is, is willing to endure, the indignity. He, he joyfully and willingly, in obedience to the Father, subjects himself to. That's the glory of God. That's showing his power. So throughout Jesus' life, I imagine the angels are shouting glory in heaven every time we see Jesus weak, and suffering and being tempted in our place and yet no, knew no sin, angels are shouting glory. So think, I mean, Jesus' whole ministry, he says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Angels in heaven, glory to God in the highest. That's God's glory. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's, he's, he's sweating bullets and praying, knowing what he's going to have to go through at the cross. And he begs these few disciples, just stay awake from me and pray. And they keep falling asleep. And so alone, he just cries out to his father, if there's any other way, but not my will, but yours be done. In weakness, he's just weeping and in fear, overtaking his body. And the angels are saying, glory to God in the highest. And he's betrayed by Judas, one of his closest disciples, with a kiss. And the angels say, glory to God. And Peter denies him when he, at his moment of need. And, and the angels are saying, glory to God. There's that scene where he's struck on the mouth. Caiaphas, the high priest, answers him a question and he answers it. And someone nearby just strikes him on the mouth. 
and he's spit upon, he's beaten, and his clothes are gambled away, and he's hung on a cross, and he suffocates, and he dies, and he's buried. And it's not waiting for the glory. That's the glory, right? That's the glory of God's salvation in weakness. If you've never heard the story, it looks really pitiful and weak the first time you read through the accounts of Jesus' arrest and, and, and uh, trial and beating and suffering and death. But once you know what's going on there, it's a different picture, isn't it? I've read through Line the Witch in the Wardrobe with our kids uh, more than once now out loud. First time was with my daughter, Lily Mae, three years ago on sabbatical. And, and uh, we were driving across the country and we got to the chapter where Aslan gives his life over to be killed on the stone table. Spoiler alert, sorry. <laughs> Too late. Hopefully we're all aware maybe of that story. But anyway, so I'm reading this out loud with Lily Mae and, and we're in this hotel in Kansas City and, and she's you know, up with the book light with me and we're reading this story and her reaction is exactly like Lucy's and Susan's in the chapter because she is, does not see this coming. And they shave his mane off and they tie him and everyone's mocking. First, they're kind of afraid, right? But once they realize, oh, he's, he's just going, going along with this, then they just pounce and she's just this look like, what? I was almost gonna leave her to read the next chapter the next night, but I just couldn't do it at the end. He dies and she's like, what? So we read the next chapter and she's like, yes. But, but then I've read it out loud with Levi, I just finished a week ago, but we've also listened to it on audiobook. And I noticed with Lily May, the second reading once you know what's actually happening there, what at first read looked like weakness, now she reads it and there's, <laughs> there's this like twinkle in her eye, right? She goes, oh, that's his power. That's not his weakness. He's giving his life as a substitute, right? And the same here, the angels are saying, the weakness of God as he steps down and he, and, he, and he humbles himself and he endures for the joy set before him, the, the, the shame of the cross, that's the glory of God being displayed through Jesus' weakness. And if we don't get that, that God's plan to display his glory often involves and even is through weakness, then how will we ever get to the point where we say, Am I okay with God wanting to display his glory through my weakness? I mean, that's what Paul said, right? He, that once he prayed multiple times for, for something that he just wanted the Lord to take away. And, and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. I just wonder, could it be that there are circumstances in your life, in my life, and, and you're praying, God, would you just show up, show your glory, show your power here? And he's saying, I am. I show my glory in your weakness, through your weakness, being for you a God of comfort and hope and strength and a God of, with promises that one day everything will be made right. I am showing my power through your weakness. I was convicted this week thinking about how uh, the sorts of prayers that tend to dominate my off the top of my head, day-to-day -day prayer life, often when circumstances present are, God, uh, make this quick, Lord. Would you, would you just help this to sort of get over, right? That's one of our prayers. Lord, something hard is happening, and God, would you just make this end, right? Bring it to a close quickly. Or the word smooth. And I pray 
pray a lot for smooth, right? As if smooth ride is, is at the top of God's lift, so, lift, you know? So whatever it is, we gotta travel. God, would you just give us a, a, a smooth trip? Or God, would you just make this morning go smoothly? Or family difficult times at the holidays? God, would you just make this go smoothly, right? And, and words like that dominate my, my, my prayer life. Sort of my, my, my instinct to pray is always... I think with this underlying assumption that God's glory is more displayed in my strength, right? My comfort, my ease. So just get me through this. So God, can you just make me healthy so that then I might, right? And I know the picture of Jesus here, God's power is made perfect through weakness and he actually glorifies himself through weakness and uses it in our life for, even for our good and his glory. The angels help us to get this, right? Glory to God in the highest. Uh, Mark Macon, he was sitting over there in the first service, came up afterward. I don't know this poem. I have to go look it up. But G.K. Chesterton, I guess, has a poem with the line, glory to God in the lowest, talking about the incarnation, right? That's the point. All right, so run out of time. So the angels say, glory to God in the highest, this, this humbling and this weakness of God in the incarnation, beginning in, in the birth of Jesus, but all the way through his life to, to, to his death and burial is the glory of God. But second thing that the angels say about this birth is peace on earth among men with whom he's pleased. And there's lots more I can say than I'm going to say right here. But I will say, we're in the Gospel of Mark. In two weeks, we're going to be coming back to that and continuing our study of the life and the teaching uh, and the, the death and, and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And we are going to keep coming back to this idea of how is God going to make peace among men? Because he doesn't just say peace on earth. The angels say peace on earth among men with whom he's pleased, which implies that God is not pleased with all men, Right? That's the, 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 the point that the scripture tells us about ourselves, right? None is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned, all um, have turned from God. We all like sheep have gone astray. So how, who gets peace with God? Well, it's gonna be through Jesus. It's gonna be through the Savior. It's gonna be through the Christ who lays his life down as a sacrifice for sin and whom God raises from the dead, guaranteeing that that was payment in full for the consequences of sin. And as a result, is the peace treaty comes with terms, the Bible says. God says, you can have peace with me. You receive Jesus, who earned it, who won it. You turn from your sin, you turn back to me, and you receive Jesus. John 1 says, the cha- John 1 says to all who received him, Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God, to be at peace with God. Peace among men with whom he is well pleased. Jesus is the one who well pleases God and we receive peace with God through him. So that's the announcement. Let's just quickly look at these responses because they're good. First of all, the shepherds. You know, you notice they only see a little glimpse of the beginning of what Jesus is gonna do. That's it. Maybe they never saw Jesus again. I don't know. Maybe later on they, saw, they encountered him as again, again, but we don't know that. Right here, just based on the little that they've seen, angels have told them this baby is Savior Christ the Lord. They went, find the baby just as they were told. Here's their response. Based on what they're shown, I think their response is an example of receiving Jesus, God's Savior, right? First, verse 15 and 16, they believe what they're told, right? The angels say that baby is a Savior, Christ the Lord, born for you, go see. 
And they hasten to go see. The fact that they drop everything and run shows us they believe the angels, right? That skepticism, well, I don't know about that. Maybe tomorrow morning we'll see if I hear news of a baby around. No, I mean, they hasten to go find this baby. I wonder what they were knocking on doors and looking for light. on. But they go and they find this baby, and it's just like they have been told. So first of all, the response is they believe God's word to them. A Savior's been born, Christ the Lord, lying in a manger. Go look. And they go look with haste. In verse 17, when they get there, they, they tell what they believe, right? They actually tell Mary and Joseph what the angels said. They said, listen, the, ma'am, that, that baby you're holding is a savior, Christ the Lord, our savior, right? Angel said, your baby is a savior born unto us, Christ the Lord. Verse 17 says, they, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. They tell Mary and Joseph what they've come to believe. That baby is a savior. And then they leave rejoicing over what they've seen and heard. It, again, it's obvious that they believe what God has told them about this baby. Based on their limited facts, they don't have all the answers and explanation. There's probably a lot of mystery, and I don't understand this. But nevertheless, they leave glorifying and praising God, obviously publicly, because in, uh, in verse 18, it says, all who heard about this in town had a reaction. Just pray that the Lord would help us when we, as we see God in flesh, born as a savior for us, and we believe it, that it would bring joy. It would produce a joy, bear fruit of worship and not just be this sort of theological category and truth that we assent to, but that we would, we would leave here rejoicing and glorifying God because of this news. Mary and Joseph's response just says one thing about Mary and then one thing about the two of them. But 19 says Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. That's more than just saying she, she always remembered this, which I'm sure she did, but she treasured these things in her heart, pondering them in her heart. It's, it's a word that means like ha having a dialogue, right? Sometimes that word is something you have with other people, but she pondered these things in her heart. This, these words that the, the shepherd said about her baby, and as he grew up, her boy, and as he was a man, her son, she pondered these things in her heart. She... she <laughs> At very least, this tells us the incarnation is something that's mind-boggling and worthy of our pondering, right? Wrestling, how can this be? What has God done? Why is this such good news? And Mary pondered these things in our heart. We should too. In verse 21, I almost skipped over this. It almost seems like it's another part of the story, but I think it's the end of this little, this little section. Verse 21, it says, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And, and I love it. They obey. In this little way, uh, Mary and Joseph obey. An angel said, that baby's going to be a savior. Name him God saves. And so eight days later, they're holding this little baby. The baby's getting circumcised. And they're like, we're going to name him God saves. I can't imagine how this baby is going to save people from their sins. But God said, name him God saves. So Jesus it is, God, God saves, right? This little, this little act of obedience is just, is, is an indicator that they are trusting the word of the Lord, right? A couple weeks ago, Jack preached and it's Mary's response. Um, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. And so they say, may it be according to your word. This baby's gonna be a savior. Naming him, God saves. Isn't that the way it is with our obedience, right? It's an indicator of, do we, do we trust God? Even if we can't fully understand it and explain it, we trust him. Last thing 
is verse 18, just this last response of all who heard um, is interesting because it says, uh, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. This doesn't mean they were blown away like, yeah, this is amazing. This isn't the, re the reaction of the shepherds. It doesn't seem to imply that all the others believed it too and re were rejoicing. It's as the shepherds are telling this story, there's more suspicion and question mark in that word wonder. Their response is, I don't know about this, right? Luke uses this word all the time in his gospel. It's the word he uses when Zechariah, who's John the Baptist's dad, and the angel says, I want you to name him John. And when he actually names him John, every, all the family and friends are there, right, gathered, and he says his name will be John. And everyone goes, and it says everyone wondered because no one in his family had been named this. So he named this baby totally, you know, outside of convention, and it leaves them all going, What? They wondered why he picked John, right? It's the same word when Peter shows up at the tomb and it's empty and there's burial clothes and it says he sees these burial clothes and he leaves wondering, marveling at, at what he's just found. There's, it, I don't think he totally gets it yet. He's saying, wait, this doesn't add up. And that's the response of so many to Jesus, right? This claim, God, a baby, born, God Almighty, he never stops being God, and yet he's fully man. He's not just God with sort of a, a people mask on, pretending, or a figment of our man. No, he's really man, and it makes us say, wait, what? That's a good place to be. Maybe this morning, that's about where you're at. You read verse 18, you go, yeah, that's me right there. This, this Christmas story is, is a bit hard for me to swallow. Makes me say, wait, what? Well, there's going to be more that makes you say, wait, what? So I want to invite you, keep coming on Sundays. We're going to be studying through the Gospel of Mark again. Jesus is going to say more things to make you say, wait, what? <laughs> He's going to do more things to make you say, wait, what? And, and be praying even this morning, saying, Lord, this story just makes me scratch my head. I don't get it. Lord, if this is true, would you help me understand? Would you show me this is truth? Would you confirm this to me? Would you help me see this Jesus is a Savior, Christ the Lord? and he's born for me. All right, I want you to take a couple of minutes uh, to pray. Be quiet. Again, turn. What are we hearing? What is the Lord teaching you this morning? What is God stirring up? Maybe this morning it's, there's circumstances right now. You, you, you haven't even tracked with me since we talked about God's power being made perfect in your weakness, and that's just been on your mind. The rest is, maybe you need to talk to the Lord about that. Maybe it's just being really honest and saying, God, I don't know about all this, but if this is true, I don't want to miss it. Help me understand. Help me see or whatever you need to pray. So take a minute and then I'll close us in prayer and we'll sing.